Good morning, Spanish River. So good to see you in the house of the Lord this morning. My name is Timothy, and it's my pleasure and privilege to open up God's word uh, for us this morning. Uh, but before I do, I just want to say two quick things. One, I just want to give a big thank you to our international team. Every Sunday, a group of volunteers from our church welcome our guests from different countries and provides translation into both Portuguese and Spanish. So I just want to give a shout out to Fanny and Tina who's, Tina, who's way up there in the room. You guys can't see, there, see them, but they're up there translating uh, our service into, into those languages. So let's give a Lord thanks for these men and women. And then I want to just invite you to join us over the next month, over the next 30 days. We as a church are gathering together for 30 days of prayer and fasting. Raise your hand if you were with us on Wednesday night for our Ash Wednesday service. The place was packed out. It was an amazing service. We humbled ourselves before our, the Lord. We prayed together, encouraged one another, sang songs together. And we want to dedicate the next 30 days towards prayer, intentional prayer, and fasting. And so Pastor David and our team worked really hard to put together a resource to guide you over the next 30 days. So we want to invite, invite you to consider joining us for prayer. We're going to be gathering Tuesday evenings and Wednesday during the morning and the afternoon uh, to here in the chapel, the West Chapel here, for prayer. So we want to encourage you to consider coming and joining us during that time over the next 30 days. And then also, if you're able to, to fast. So please grab this resource. You might have a few of these left. Maybe not because a lot of them w went gone after that went, uh, were taken on Wednesday. But don't worry. We have it online for you. You can download the PDF version at SpanishRiver.com slash prayer. Well, we are wrapping up our time in the overarching uh, sermon series called King of Hope and concluding um, our study over the last few weeks, particularly on the sermon on the mount. And so here we've been seeing Jesus starting his earthly ministry. Pastor David taught us how David, uh, that, that Jesus, before he started his ministry, went into the wilderness for a time of preparation. The enemy came and tempted him. And after he proved himself to be who he was, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Redeemer of this world, Jesus went forth and started his earthly ministry. And Matthew 5 tells us, that Jesus was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing the sick. And because he was doing these two things so effectively, witnessing of the kingdom of heaven and bringing service and healing to those people who, who need it, people started to pay attention. The, the crowds, Matthew tells us, started to draw near people from Galilee from Jerusalem, even beyond the Jordan, started to make their way to hear of this man named Jesus of Nazareth. And the, the crowds grew so large, Jesus had to climb up on the side of a mountain. And then he sat down, and Matthew tells us he opened his mouth and started the most famous sermon, sermon ever preached. And so we see Jesus continuing the tradition of the rabbi sitting while everyone else was standing. Now, that's a little different from our scenario this morning, right? I have to stand, and you guys get to sit. I guess I, I get the short end of the stick. But don't worry, relax, listen. But put your mind 2,000 years ago. 
Imagine if you were numbered amongst the crowd, listening to this man speak the very words of God. So the question I want us to think about as we start to prepare our hearts and minds is why should we diligently study the Sermon on the Mount? And then secondly, why should we seek by the Spirit of God empowering us to live consistently with the words of Jesus? Well, the Sermon on the Mount teaches us and shows us Jesus' heart. He's opening his heart, not just his mind to us, but his heart for us. He is showing us the way to blessing. He is teaching us a contrary doctrine of this world that tells us the way to flourishing is not being self-reliant and haughty, not being proud, not being cruel and using people and agitating people. But he tells us the way to God, the way to God is to embrace the poverty of spirit. Not to be proud, but to be meek. Not to be cruel, but to be merciful. To, to be peacemakers, not agitators. And these people who follow these ways, Jesus makes a pronouncement upon them and it says, these people are blessed. But then also, the Sermon on the Mount also shows us how to influence the world and not be influenced by the world. Right? So Jesus was busy in his life Preaching, teaching, and healing. Witnessing and serving. And so we here at Spanish River use the term kingdom platform. We believe that our lives are created on purpose for a purpose. And that is to both witness and serve. And this is where we get it. God has called you not to build your kingdom by fulfilling your dreams, your aspirations, your goals. That's the way of the world. But to submit your lives for a greater kingdom. Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is the kingdom, king, of, king of hope. He has come to usher in his kingdom. And as we, his princes and princesses, we walk in his ways when we seek to influence the world with the truth and the goodness of the gospel. You see, in essence, the, king, the Sermon on the Mount is wisdom from God inviting us through faith to reorient ourselves. To reorient our values, our vision, and our habits to the king's vision, values, and habits. And so by, by those words are the way of introduction. Let us now go to God's word. If you have your Bible, I'm going to ask that you open up to Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to be reading the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Here in verse 28, Matthew writes for us the crowd's response and he says this in verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the living God. When was the last time you were astonished? I mean, like truly amazed. Go back to that moment. Well, I got to experience that a little bit last weekend. The family and I, we had a, a little brief vacation. We took the kids to the parks in Orlando, and I saw a sign that said, meet and greet, Spider-Man's here. So I'm like, oh, my kids are going to love this. So my 10-year-old goes, we get in line, we queue up, right? We're, we're good, you know, uh, Universal Studios people, right? You just queue up and stand in line. That's what you do at these parks. But you're waiting for that moment in anticipation for the payoff. And so the payoff in this line is 
meeting Spider-Man. Now, my son is 10 years old. He knows that Spider-Man is not real, right? I, um, did I just mess it up for you people? But, but Spider-Man is a comic, right? He was an invention and, uh, of, a, of an amazing artist back in the 50s, right? And now he's making a particular company billions of dollars. And so we're in line. My son loves Spider-Man. I love Spider-Man. I grew up on Spider-Man. And so as we queue up in line, we finally get the moment to meet. We expect us to kind of be moved through like cattle. But Spider-Man actually takes time and talks with us. And it's not just in his voice. I mean, he's doing a great job acting like Spider-Man. He has the pitch. He has the delivery. He has the lines. He has the context. He has everything. And so he starts asking our names, where we're from. And he says, yeah, I'm from Queens. Right? And at that moment, he looks to my, my son, my 10-year-old, and says, hey, where are you from? And my son, my son just dropped with astonishment. I mean, he was floored. Like, he knew Spider-Man was not real, but at this point, he's starting to question himself. Maybe he's real. <laughs> That's astonishment. He's called the amazing Spider-Man for a reason, right? Because he astonishes us. But the word astonishment, it means more than just amaze. Like, oh, that's cool. When people heard Jesus' sermon, it wasn't just a response of, wow, this guy really knows what he's talking about. So good for him. It wasn't that. The Greek word that Matthew chooses to use is to be striked out of one's senses. To be at a loss. To be wrecked, to be torn asunder. You see, when Jesus preached these words from heaven, the people were thunderstruck. They were beside themselves. They didn't know how they were going to move on from that moment because his words were like daggers to their souls. You see, gospel preaching, empowered by the Holy Spirit, first wrecks us. And then radically reorients us to the holiness of God. And so our text this morning, I believe, asks two questions of us. First is, why were they so astonished? And the second, way, the second question by way of application for us this morning is, why are we not? Well, Matthew is clear. They were astonished because... Jesus spoke as one who had authority. Verse 29 tells us that. Unlike the scribes who were standing and were numbered amongst the crowd that day, they, they were astonished because it was the tradition in first century Judaism that if you're a rabbi, you'll spend your time quoting other rabbis. Wise, intelligent, well-known rabbis to support your position. And so your sermon would be basically quoting all these other people. But that's not what Jesus does here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said. But then Jesus follows that phrase by saying what? But I say. Now, now sure enough, um, if you really study the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see glimpses and references to the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, with sprinklings of Daniel and the minor prophets thrown in in good measure. But Jesus is not referring to those prophets to validate and bolster his position. Later, Jesus would say to these scribes, you search the scriptures because you believe in them, they give you eternal life. But I tell you, the scriptures, the prophets, they speak of me. 
So in essence, Jesus is saying to us that the word of God doesn't validate his ministry. Jesus validates the word of God because the word of God is, finds its source and origin in Christ himself. The scriptures speak of me. And so they're astonished. They're astonished because Jesus speaks with clarity and strength and authority. And these types of words of Jesus speaking, these are the type of things that would get someone killed in first century Jerusalem. Because he is speaking in stark contradiction to the cultures and their way of life. And he is opening them to a greater vision of the kingdom of heaven. This is something they should have known, something they should, that should have been obvious to them, but they were too blind to see. So the Sermon on the Mount is a crushing blow to their self-righteousness, and it's a crushing blow to ours as well. And Jesus is showing them and us that the kingdom of God is not self-manufactured by superficial religion. But the kingdom of God is received by grace through faith in the one who taught us, Jesus himself. And so now the second question for the rest of our time this morning. Why aren't we equally as astonished and torn asunder as the people who heard Jesus' words 2,000 years ago? Well, I believe many times we miss the warnings that Jesus provides for us in his conclusion of this sermon. And so... For the duration of our time, I want to go through the four warnings that Jesus gives his followers. And I'm going to ask that you would consider how they apply to your life. Jesus here, in a masterful way, provides two, two paths that leads to two trees that makes two claims that are built on two foundations. Let us look at that. Let's look first at the two paths. Jesus prepares for us and delivers a metaphor because he knows that we are prone to apathy. We're, we're familiar with holy things. We become familiar with the words of scripture. And we become, in essence, because of sin and familiarity, we become numb to the words that Jesus tells us. And so in Matthew verse, chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus says to us, he commands us, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Oh, man. Jesus is saying, that salvation is difficult. Following him is by far going to be the most difficult, the most challenging thing you will ever do with your life. Because he's God. He has a right to challenge us. Because this is his world. We are his people, right? We exist for God. God does not exist for us. And therefore, one pastor put it like this, if, if you know that you've created a God, a God and formulated a God of your own choosing when he always agrees with you and never challenges you. That's a 
surefire way that you're not following Jesus of Nazareth. Because you've never felt rebuked. You never felt challenged. You never felt the call to step out and to grow to something larger. And this is what this metaphor is telling us. He tells us, enter by the narrow gate. In order to enter by the narrow gate, that means I have to leave something behind to get through. That means I might need to leave someone behind to get through. There there needs to be a loss. But in that loss, Jesus is inviting me to something so much better. Because that path leads to a tree. That path leads to two, uh, uh, one tree, one tree that bears forth good fruit. But if you take the wrong gate down the wide road, it leads you to a tree that brings you and offers you disease fruit. Verse 15 and 16, Jesus gives us another warning because we are prone to embrace false teaching. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. So Jesus tells us that false teachers are exposed by the bad fruit that their lives produce. But good teachers are verified and validated by the good fruit that their lives produce. And that is why Paul told the church when he wrote to them, In 1 Thessalonians 2.8, he says, so we cared for you, church. We cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very lives. And so Jesus is saying that your teachers should be people you know. The people who speak into your life and who nourish you, your shepherds, should be people who, who you can shake a hand with. For you to go, to go to lunch with, for you to know them, and for them to get to know you. Because how, are you, how else are you going to know the fruit of their lives unless you get to know them? And so, listen, there's great resources online. There, there's great biblical teaching on YouTube, great podcasts to listen to. But those people can't be your pastor. Your pastor needs to be someone who you love and loves you and knows you by name. Jesus says to you, you know them by their fruit. And so he leads us down two paths. Metaphorically, he leads us down those paths to two trees. And then those two trees makes two claims. Let us look at verse 21. Now everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? uh, Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What a scary, what a scary teaching. And by far the most frightful teaching for me and my, cho- my chosen vocation. Because Jesus says it is possible, there is a scenario where it's possible that you prophesy, that you speak the very words of God, that you have right doctrine. 
It is possible that you engage in the highest levels of spiritual warfare and you cast out demons. It is possible for you externally to have the, a pristine Christian faith. And we can even put, use the word Christian in front of them because these people refer to Jesus as Lord, Lord. But it is possible that in the final analysis that our works of righteousness can be declared and judged by God to be works of lawlessness. And Jesus says to us, depart from me, I never knew you. So at the end of the day, the Christian faith is not based on if you know Jesus, but if Jesus knows you. And that's not just in the, like the idea he knows who you are, he knows your name, but that, that word means an intimate relationship. And so if you view God as a boss, Meaning that if you think at the end of your life, you're going to be able to say, all right, boss, here, let me lay out my resume to you. And these people had a phenomenal resume. I mean, these guys can get pastoral jobs at any church, right? I mean, look at, look at everything they've been able to do. But, but if you view God as your boss, thinking at the end of your life, you're going to be able to submit that resume for God to make a determination. He says, oh, no, heaven will be so much better for you, I'll be so blessed if I had you. Of course you get him. Then you're viewing God as a boss, expecting an eternal payday at the end of your life. And many people have a spiritual view like that, and that's a claim that this world makes, right? It's up to you. You, you live a life that is meaningful, that makes a difference. And Jesus is warning you and, and cautioning you this morning to say, God is not presented to us as a boss but he is presented to us through Jesus as a father. And so Jesus is calling us as his children to embrace the teachings of the Sermon on, on the Mount and, and take a view that my life is not working for God as a boss, but my life is to be with God as a father. And those two prepositions, with and for, makes all the difference. God loves us as a father. He embraces us. Yes, he challenges us to grow, but as a good father, as a, as a good mother, as a good parent desires their children, their child to grow and flourish into all that God desires them to be and calls them out and disciplines them to, so they can do such, but it's motivated by love. We know that our good works don't work at the end, but only the work of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus invites us to be with him and to live our, our lives and align our hearts with the truth that he gives us in this sermon and, and to let our lives flow as a result. But one final warning. He leads us down two paths to two trees, making two claims that are built on two foundations. He gives us a warning because we know he, he knows we're prone to foolishness. Let's look at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. So what foundation are you building your life on? You notice it was the same house, in the same neighborhood, used with, with the same materials, attacked by the same storm. The sole difference, uh, the, the, the metaphor that Jesus gave this two foundations, uh, the, uh, the two houses, was the foundations that they were built upon. One chose the easy path that was wide. One chose to follow the philosophies of this world that tickles our ears and pleases our hearts as candy does to a child. But th that tree does not bear good fruit, just like candy can't sustain you. It tastes sweet, but it can't sustain you. You need good fruit to nourish your soul. Fruit that teaches you to walk with God as a father, not as a boss. And Jesus says to us, he is saying to you, beware because you can spend your time, your efforts, your resources building a life that at the end is destroyed by the storm. But Jesus says, don't follow the path of foolishness. But hear the words that I speak to you this morning. For Jesus walked that path called the way of suffering. To that mount called Golgotha, where he was nailed to the tree that bore the good fruit of our salvation. And then on that very tree, Jesus declared and make a proclamation. He made a claim while he was suffering and he had the world's sin on his shoulders. He pronounced to heaven and to the world and even to our hearts this morning, it is finished. Our sins are paid for. And he says, come follow me and build your life on the words that I teach you for it is a rock that will sustain your life through the storm. Let us pray. Lord, we're astonished this morning. Lord, Lord we're striked out, out of our senses, Lord, as the hearers of Paul responded on his sermon on the day of Pentecost, we are cut to the heart. What can we do to be saved? Because you speak the truth of heaven. And Lord, we are convicted of our sin. Lord, because we know that we have gone down the wide gate, the wide, we went through the wide gate, down the wide path that was easy, that many people walked on and called us to follow them but lord that path led us to a wicked tree that gave us diseased fruit because we embrace a false vision of life a vision that says that we can be good enough to get into heaven we can be good enough to be be placed into a right relationship with our creator we can do it on our own and lord we confess we can't Lord, many, many of us here, Lord, this morning, we've gone through the storm already. Our, our, our relationships are, are scattered. Our homes are in disarray. 
Many of us, our relationships, particularly our marriages, on, on our last leg, Lord, and we don't have a way out. We don't have hope. Lord, we have stuff, set our energy and our time into a business that, that's fired us. And now we don't have means of employment, Lord. And we're wondering what was all this for? But Lord, you by your spirit tell us. It was to astonish us. To show us a better path that's difficult, that's hard, that many people don't take. But Lord, the path where you are on, and that you're guiding us to a good tree, the tree of life. The tree that offers forgiveness and restoration and renewal. The tree that makes a claim that we are forgiven. That Jesus has done all things to secure our salvation. And then he invites us as we submit to his words and by his Holy Spirit to build our homes upon the rock, which is Jesus and his teachings. Lord, wreck us this morning and reorient us to your kingdom purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people say, amen.